Praise the Lord. It is so good to be with you all this Sunday morning. And we are coming to the end of our study through the book of Esther. The book of Esther. A book that, um, well, it's very popular. Very interestingly, has no mention of God's name in it. Coming through the end of this book, we find ourselves in the second half of chapter 9, the penultimate chapter. Penultimate, that's a good word. Write that one down. If you don't have that one in your daily vernacular, you need the word penultimate. It means second to last. Um, Maybe I should just say second to last. The second to last chapter of the book of Esther. And what have we observed so far? What about the book of Esther stands out to us? Makes no mention of God's name. But God's presence throughout the entire narrative is so evident that it is undeniable. The people of Jewish descent, while conscripted to live in the Persian Empire, they've been relocated from their home even though they're somewhere they don't necessarily belong, even though they've been persecuted and the people that they live among judge them, mock them, ridicule them. Even though all of these things are true, they have found relief from their enemies. Hey, that's something you can say hallelujah. They found relief from their enemies. Now I ask you, why in 2023... Is that the right year? Yeah. Okay, I get it wrong sometimes. Thank you, Peyton. Why in 2023 are we reading a story that is more than 2,500 years old? 2,500 years old. This took place in the 5th century B.C. Does it have any relevance to our lives today? I mean, it's strictly a historical account. I mean, this story follows just a narrative of a, of a little woman who was in the right place at the right time through God's sovereignty, was appointed to become queen of the Persian Empire even though she was a descendant of the Jews. Her uncle who had adopted her becomes the second most powerful person in this empire even though there's a person that is out to get them, Haman, the wicked, the evil, the deplorable, the detestable, has stirred up anger inside of the people in this community that they live in. Anger that was already there. He didn't create it. I don't... I don't know if you realize this, but it's actually impossible to make somebody feel something. It's impossible to make somebody feel something. Can I pick on you this morning? Are you in a good mood or? Go right ahead, honey. You guys don't know this, but sometimes Miss Michelle and I don't agree. And I know that you all realize this. I'm an easy person to disagree with. I just let things go, and I don't care about being right. Don't you agree? No one said amen. My goodness. I'm not going to make a liar out of me this morning. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Michelle and I don't agree. Here's how our fights, our disagreements, we don't fight. We're holy. Here's how our disagreements go. Well, you're making me feel. That's what Michelle always says. See, I'm a think person. She's a feel person. I I work up here. She works in here. I need Ms. Michelle in my life. Sometimes I need to be reminded that people have feelings. And that those feelings are powerful. It doesn't matter how right I am. Ms. Michelle will turn to me and she will say, You're making me feel like you don't care. 
I said, what do you mean I don't care? I understand what you're saying. I'm just saying it doesn't matter because that's not the real world, honey. By the way, that's the wrong response. For all you people that are like me and you're thinkers, that's the wrong response. I forgot my point. Why am I talking about feelings? Where am I going with this? Oh, my God. I just wanted to pick on Michelle. No, I've got a point. It's impossible to make somebody feel something. Now listen to me, Michelle, even though that's true, it's impossible for, make, to, for me to make you feel bad. That's your feelings, not my actions. It doesn't make her feelings less important. Hey, I can say, I feel like this is a good book. I feel like being relieved from my enemies is something that I want to say hallelujah, praise God to, lift my hands up, praise Jesus. I can't make you feel that way. I can't make someone feel angry. I can do things that contribute to them feeling angry, but I do not have so much power that I can make someone feel anything. Here's my point. We look at the book of Esther and we ask, what does it have to do with our lives? Why does this narrative more than just a story that we can read? Why is it just a list of events that tell us this happened, then this happened, then this happened? It's not just a chronology. You guys, we read the book of Esther and we remember what God has been doing. And it reminds me. In remembering what God has been doing, it reminds me that in my life today, that same sovereign God 2,500 years ago is still on His throne right now. He's still on His throne in my life and in your life. It's a pretty incredible book. It may make no mention of God's name, but He's evident. Coming to this last, second to last, penultimate chapter. Let's look at what the Jewish people did after they were relieved of their enemies. Our text can be found in Esther chapter 9, verses 20 through 32. Before I read, pray with me. Father in heaven, help us as we turn to your word this morning to understand it. Give us illumination that we would understand what this means, not just in its original context, Lord, but also what it means as we live our lives today, as we leave this place this morning, as we worship you throughout the week. What does it mean that we would be a people called by your holy name? What does it mean, Lord, that we serve a sovereign God? Why does it matter? Burden our hearts, Lord, that we might know you better. Change us, Lord, that we might reflect you better. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The Bible says, and Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So 
The Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, and the enemy of all the Jews had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should be returned on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the appointed time every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority confirming the second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of, king, of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth. And these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their feast and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. Praise God for His Word. My sermon's a little different this morning. Different in terms of what I normally do. I've got so much to say from this text in terms of how it applies to our life that I do not have time to dive into the historical part. It's all right. You can say hallelujah, praise God right now. I say, some of you wonder, why do I, why do, I do the, the boring parts? Why do I consistently include those in messages? And, and the reason is this. Part of what I believe we should be doing as a church whenever we stand up and we proclaim God's word is we should be emulating or demonstrating what good Bible study looks like. The reason I go through the process of discovery with you and the reason why I sometimes include the nerdy parts like looking at this text and saying, was this book written just to give, you know, explain the reason for a holiday that the Jews celebrate in February or January? The reason I do that many times is because I want you to know that you can read the Bible all by yourself. Well, actually, that's not true. You can't read the Bible by yourself. You need the Holy Spirit of God there with you to illuminate the text and bring meaning to it. But you are capable of sitting down with God on your own, reading, opening the Bible, reading it, interpreting it, and applying it to your life. You don't need me to do that. You don't need me for that. You, in fact, don't need the church for that. You can read the Bible all by yourself, understand what it says, and be a holy Christian. And so I try to emulate how you can do that. 
I don't want to rush to the good part and you guys say, I would never be able to draw all of that out of a text like Brother Derek does. I'm not special. God and I don't have such a unique relationship that you can't do what I do. This morning I'm going to skip all that. I've really only got three headers that I want to discuss. What does it mean to have relief from our enemies? We find that phrase in verse, uh, is it verse 22? The Jews got relief from their enemies. Second, what happened with the evil plans of Haman? Verse 25, but when it came before the king. And finally, I want to close with what Esther sent to the people in the 127 provinces. Verse 30. In words of peace and truth. Those are my three headings. All those phrases found in our text. Relief from our enemies. But when it came before the king, in words of peace and truth. I hope you're interested in the historical part. Maybe you'll go and ask questions or find some of that out on your own because it's a lot of fun and my heart will lament that I'm not spending time on it this morning. You might rejoice and that's fine. But let's jump into our text. What we find in verse 20, really before verse 20, is what happened in verses 17, 18, and 19 after the Jewish people had been delivered from their enemies in the Persian Empire. After they had conquered those people that had tried to kill them, after these 75,500 evil, wicked people had been killed justly because they were trying to kill the Jews, after all this had happened, the Jewish people and those that gathered with them they started a party. Isn't that what you do when you have great success? Sometimes we neglect that and pay attention. It's important to celebrate when good things happen. To stop and to celebrate. I've never been more miserable in any workplace environment than when we finish a project and we immediately move on to the next project. As a leader, the worst mistake I've ever made in a leadership position is finish a project, move on to the next one. You know what we need to do because we're humans? You finish a project, you throw a party. You eat cookies and cake and drink until you get sick. Now, gluttony's a sin, all right? I'm being hyperbolic. You celebrate. Then you move on. You don't stop. You don't get complacent, but you keep going. This is what the Jewish people did naturally. After they had been relieved of their enemies, they celebrated. Verse 20 begins, Mordecai recorded these things, that they were delivered from their enemies, that they celebrated on the 14th day and the 15th day, respectively, depending on whether you were in an urban or a rural area. They celebrated these things, and he, we find this phrase that he obliged or he obligated the Jewish people throughout the entire province to keep the 14th and the 15th day of Adar, as a special day for festivities. Now here's what he's doing. He said, we just had that party. It was so awesome what we were celebrating. Let's do this every single year. Let's put it on the calendar because I want to remember what we are celebrating. He obligates them. Now that's a word that in 2023 doesn't fly so well. I mean, we live in a time where you can't obligate people to do nothing. You can't tell people that you are obligated to participate in this. You can't even, you can hardly tell Christians that you are obligated to serve the church. 
You can't even tell Christians. You are obligated to love God so much that you spend time keeping up with spiritual disciplines such as prayer, Bible study, meditation on His Word. Matter of fact, in 2023, a pastor who's been given an office in the church to have authority, by the way, one of the words for pastor in the New Testament is presbyteros or elder, another one, episkopos, bishop, means overseer or ruler. Pastor can't even tell someone that what they're doing in their life might be bad for them without them getting offended. I'm not picking on anyone. I don't think anyone's doing anything. That's not what I'm saying. I want you to realize Mordecai obliging them to keep the 14th day in the month of Adar, that would not fly today. I want to ask, what does it mean to obligate people to do something, to keep this day as a holy day? Why did he obligate them to do this? Why did he do this? Verse 22 is the days on which the Jews got relief for their enemies and the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness. Why did he obligate them to keep this? Because the Jewish people needed to remember that their sorrow had been turned into gladness. That their tribulation, their persecution had been turned to rejoicing. This message echoes throughout not just a narrative in the Old Testament, but this message echoes throughout the entire Bible, as we find commands in the New Testament, Paul exhorting churches, he says, stand firm in your faith. He tells us, do not waver from the word of God. Put on the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of truth. Put these things on. It echoes that we would remember that God has relieved us from our enemies even though we might be going through a season of struggle, a season of tribulation, a season of persecution. We need to remember what has happened in the past so that we can continue to look forward to the day of our rejoicing. Verse 27 is interesting. See, verse 20 begins, Mordecai recorded these things to obligate the people that they would keep these days. But look at verse 27. Mordecai didn't obligate them and they obeyed. They obligated themselves. They obligated themselves and they took it a step further. Let me obligate myself and my offspring. Let me obligate myself, my offspring. And it goes on if you keep reading past verse 27. They obligated themselves and their offspring and... All who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written in the time appointed every year. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation. Every generation. In every clan, province, and city. And that these days of Purim should not fail to be observed. Mordecai just said, I'm obligating you. I'm obliging you. I'm obliging you to keep these days and remember what God had done in your life. And the people heard him say this and they went, yeah, say, hey, that's a pretty good idea. As a matter of fact, you don't even have to ask me to do that. I want to do it. I'm going to obligate myself and I'm going to obligate my children and I'm going to obligate everyone after me. As a matter of fact, Mordecai obligated me. My children's children will also observe this. It's so important that I want to teach my children what God did during my life so that if nothing this miraculous happens in their life, they can remember what happened to their dad. And I want them to know this story so well that they teach it to their children so that if nothing so miraculous happens in their life, they can tell stories about what happened to their granddad. 
And if generations after that, so far that we stop using grand or great, 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 and we just say one of my fathers, like they did in the Old Testament, they can look back and they say, one of my fathers went through this, just like Abraham, just like Noah, just like Seth. So that we can go back and we can remember what happened. It's important that we remember. The problem is this. If we look at verse 27, we find that Mordecai obliging the people to keep this day as a festivity would have never been enough for the people to have really celebrated. Remember I said I can't make you feel anything? I can't make you feel anything at all. I can't make you feel stirred. I can't. It doesn't matter. The people obligated themselves. We glean from that that if our heart is not in what we are doing, we will never faithfully obligate ourselves and will never obligate our children. If it's just a construct, if it's just something that we do, if it's just, well, if there's nothing else going on, I guess I might do that on the 14th and 15th day of Adar. We would never celebrate Purim. Translate that into our language. Now, Purim's an interesting holiday. I'd encourage you to call up a Jewish friend if you have one and ask them what they do. Um, I think Orthodox Jews are the ones that are more faithful to keep it, but I encourage you to do a Google search. Find out more about it. It's very fun. Let's talk about Christmas. Let's talk about Easter. Well, these are our two holidays. These are the ones that we like to tell stories about. When Christ came to the world, when Christ was resurrected from the grave, when all of these things... Well, let's talk about the days of Pentecost. Let's talk about the Reformation. Let's talk about these days in history that are important to us. Let's talk about the Revolution. Let's talk about the gunshot that was heard around the world. These things that are important to us, let's remember them. Well, if you don't care about them, me telling you to remember them will mean nothing. I can't make you feel that they're important. But if you knew how important they were, if it was in your heart, if God was working, if it was transforming you, if God was moving inside of you the same way that he moves throughout all of his people, then we would remember Christmas as the day that Jesus Christ was born, that our Lord and Savior gave up all the glories of heaven so that he could come and dwell on earth in the most fragile form, a human baby, unable to hold a bottle to his face. They probably didn't use bottles in the first century. Unable to cover himself with a blanket. Unable to change his own dirty diaper. He gave up all the glories of heaven, all the power of God, the omnipotence of his throne in heaven so that he could sit in a manger. That's why we celebrate Christmas every year. In many ways, it's become something that it's not. It's become a time to put a tree up in your house. I don't really understand what the deal with the tree is. Now, don't get me wrong. There's going to be a tree in my house. I love Christmas. It's become a time to buy presents for one another. I think that comes from the fact that the wise men gave Jesus presents. Do we teach our children to remember the wise men giving them presents or do we just give them everything that their heart desires with no explanation? You see, if we're not truly obligating ourselves the way that we should be, Christmas simply becomes 
a corporate festivity. What about Easter? The day that Jesus was raised from the dead, that the disciples saw him again. The day that after three days of mourning because he was laying in a grave was resurrected. We throw Easter eggs out. Not sure where that comes from. I'm not saying stop throwing, I'm still going to throw Easter eggs out because I want to dye the boiled eggs and I want to eat as many deviled eggs as I can and stink out my entire family that week. I love it. But stinking out my family is not the point of Easter, is it? Some of you look at me with strange face. You know it's true. Stop it. That's not the point of Easter. We must obligate ourselves with the conviction of the Holy Spirit. God must move in our hearts for these things to have any meaning. If we are simply obligated by others, then we will never be able to retell this story in any sort of meaningful way. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but loved ones, this is really the whole point of the gospel. Not only is it possible for Christmas to become a time when you buy gifts mindlessly, not only is it possible for Easter to become a time that you put on your pastel shirt mindlessly, but it's also possible for our attendance at church Sunday to Sunday, week to week, to become something so complacent that we forget what it really means to proclaim the gospel before God's people that need to hear it, before the lost that need to hear it. It becomes something that we mindlessly do. This is the whole reason that we retell the gospel week to week. Because we have experienced relief from our enemies. Just as the Jews experienced relief from their enemies, we are promised, the people of God, in Ephesians 6, 12, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We have enemies too. And while they, well, aren't necessarily, but maybe in some part are, the world outside... Our enemy is working against us. He wants us to do these things mindlessly. He wants the obligation in our heart to become numb. He wants us to forget what it means to first profess our faith in Christ. But we have, too, been delivered from our enemies. As a matter of fact, the first enemy was being blind to our need of a Savior in the first place. We've been delivered from that to be able to see our wicked flesh, to be able to repent of this to God. Paul, when writing to the church in Thessalonica in the first letter, verses one through five, chapter 1, verses 5 through 8 reads, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When... The Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. We have an enemy too, and God promises us the same relief that we see in the book of Esther. Even if we are persecuted, God promises vengeance upon those that persecute us, and he promises relief for us when we see Jesus revealed from heaven. 
That is a remarkable, remarkable promise to grab hold of. I ask you, though, what are our enemies? It's easy to talk about it and not define it. It's easy to say that there are these cosmic powers, these unseen forces. It's easy to say that they are boredom. But what our... Mm, I've got to find a different way to say that. Our and our. They're two different vowels. You pronounce them the same way. English is a dumb language. Anyways, what are the enemies that we are fighting against? This week, I, I hope all of you received a text message from me where I gave you devotionals for day one through day five as we met, the church met to pray. If you didn't receive that, I'm sorry. It means that I forgot about you and I'm a bad pastor and you can come and rebuke me for, rebuke me for that later. But let me tell you the theme of those devotionals. I didn't put a, a lot of scripture references in it because I have a tendency to be nerdy and I didn't want you guys to read this and say, oh, more of Brother Derek's nerdiness and throw it out. I put short little blips, little thoughts, just little bitty quick things that asked what are the enemies of personal revival and what are the sources of personal revival? I want to talk about these enemies that I listed out. What are the things that stand in our way of living a life on fire for God? What are the things that stand in the way of our heart being passionate about God? What are the things that stand in our way in loving God the way that He commands us to love Him? What are the things that stand in the way of the church experiencing real, genuine, sincere, unmatched revival? Let me just give you six. And if you're wondering where I'm getting these things, you can turn to Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, where Jesus Christ reveals Himself to John on the island of Pergamum, tells him to write seven letters to seven different churches, and he gives them a list of different things that they should keep in mind. The first enemy that we face is complacency. Complacency. Listen, without holy desire, we will succumb to the sin of spiritual acedia, or, that is, that word means indifference, being apathetic, being bored, People who lose the sharp edge of intention and calling can slip into the morass of listlessness and feelings of failure. We must often ask God for the grace of acute desire so that we will hunger and thirst for Him. I heard some of you flip to Revelation chapter 2 and 3. I think, um, here, I'll flip there with you so I can tell you who to look at. Where does complacency look like? What does complacency look like? I draw your attention to chapter 2, verses 18, all the way to verse 29. We find the church in Thyatria. Jesus says to them, I know your works, your love, your faith, and your endurance. He says in verse 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexually immoral adultery, to commit adultery. You know what complacency looks like? Going through the motions. Let me draw your attention to the church in Sardis, chapter 3. Jesus writes, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Oh, just going through the motions. 
Everyone looks at you and you're a good church. You put on good programs. You meet faithfully every Sunday morning. You're a good church member. You show up when you're supposed to show up. You love the church. You love the people. You're doing great things. But Monday through Friday and Saturday, you're going to do your own thing. You love the people. You pray for them, but don't have them call you. Don't have them text you. Don't invite them over for dinner. Don't do life with them. That's your private time. Complacency. Not really burdened to love God's people. Just going through the motions. Here's another one. External obedience. Complacency, but also external obedience. And I think there's a lot of people that are guilty for this. External obedience. Having This is what I think it means to have a reputation of being alive, but actually being dead. We do all the things that we're supposed to do, but there's no real motivation behind it. Remember I said we have to be obligated. We have to obligate ourselves. We can't just do things because we're told to do it. We can't just show up to church because we're supposed to. But we must be obligated to love God. It should be a time that we come together excited to worship Him, to praise Him, to sing His glory. External obedience. Many people are more concerned about conformity to rules than to simply loving God. Jesus Christ. Many people are more concerned with looking like a Christian than they are concerned with loving the man who died on a cross for their sins. Many people are more concerned, more focused on doing what they think looks good than loving God. Let me remind you for a moment that when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He didn't say, Put on your best clothes on Sunday morning. Show up to church. Make sure when you go to the synagogue, you sing as loud as you possibly can, but with a good voice and good timbre. And if you don't have that, then try to blend in. Don't be a leader. Don't stand out. Don't cause rifts. Whatever you do, make sure you go with the flow. Don't offend people. People don't like to be offended now. I can't imagine Jesus Christ saying that. I can't read the Gospels and hear those words. If you know what the Father's voice sounds like, then you know that the things that I just said sound like complete nonsense. Not only is it complacency, but it's putting more attention on our external obedience than simply loving Jesus Christ. Let me say this. Obedience without internal affection falls short of the Bible's commands. Because when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said... That you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. The second commandment is like it, that you would love your neighbor like yourself. For indeed, all the laws of the prophets are wrapped up in these two commands. Love God, love people. External obedience will come after that. It comes naturally. If you love God, you want to do what pleases Him. Yeah, you'll still show up to church on Sunday morning. Yes, you'll still tithe regularly. Yes, you'll still sing songs and you'll be a leader in your church. But you won't do it so that you'll be a spectacle. You'll do it because you love God, because you've obligated yourself in your heart. Let me give you a third enemy. Unresolved disobedience. Unresolved disobedience. What do I possibly mean by unresolved disobedience? Have I turned into a real holy roller? Have I become Wesleyan in my thought? No. 
I know that we're going to continue to war against sin. I know that this will be a struggle until we are embraced on the other side of glory. But you guys, that doesn't mean we're going to stop working on it. If you still have your finger in Revelation, look at Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, where Jesus writes to the church of Paragamum. Verse 14, he says, I have a few things against you. This is Jesus writing to the church. I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. You have issues that you are not dealing with. You have categories of sin in your life that you have said, God doesn't mind that one so much. You have things in your life that have grabbed hold of you that are preventing you from being embraced in the love of God, that are preventing you from experiencing peace that comes from God. You have issues, convictions, thoughts that you have failed to grab hold of. And if you boldly say, Brother Derek, that's not me. All my sin has been accounted for. I would simply point you to the book of 1 John where John writes, Let he who says he has no sin, he is a liar. The problem is not that you have not conquered these sins. The problem is not that you haven't got them completely under control. The problem is that you have allowed these things to be neglected. You have allowed them to become unresolved. Perhaps because you've struggled with them so long, you've decided it's futile, and as long as you can rein it in so that no one else sees it, then it won't be a problem for you. Church, I tell you to repent. The Word of God commands you to repent. The Word of God tells you to weep over your sinfulness, and this just isn't sin in an individual matter, but also corporately. It's possible to be a pastor and never tell anyone that they could do better. I don't think the church will ever see real vitality from that kind of uh, shepherding. As a matter of fact, I wouldn't even call it shepherding. There are problems among you. There's problems among us. And, and what are we to do with that? We're to bring them to God. We're to bring them to God and we are to ask Him to do what only He can do. I'm only on my first... I'm going to speed up. Neglecting spiritual disciplines is an enemy of spiritual passion. When this spiritual disciplines in our lives, prayer, Bible study, meditation on God's Word, when those things begin to dwindle in our life and they become less important... Listen, what ends up happening is your spiritual passion declines along with it. It's as simple as that. When you neglect prayer, you think about God less throughout your day. When you don't read God's Word, you are easily caught by every 
uh, every wind of false doctrine that passes through social media. When you don't know the Father's word, you don't you don't rejoice over what he has told you. Neglecting spiritual disciplines causes spiritual apathy. It's what causes the complacency and everything else that we've discussed so far. To the church in Ephesus, Jesus wrote, you have forgotten your first love. It's as simple as that. We forgot to love God. Here's a fifth one. I know none of you have this problem, but I do, so I included it in my list. Loving truth more than God. Knowing about God will never be a substitute for becoming like Him. Sometimes it's easy to get caught up in all the things that we could possibly disagree with and to support ourselves and to try and be right or to try and make sure that we are sound. There's a difference between trying to be right and contending with other Christians for the faith. We should build each other up. We should challenge each other. We should make sure that we have good grips on this and that it's going back to the Bible and not just our personal opinion. That's contending. But if it's just become an issue of proving our point or being right, There's no worship in that. That's an academic exercise. I knew a pastor once had a coffee mug. I used to say I really want one, and I've decided I don't. I guess this pastor had had too many uh, disagreements or whatever, so he got a coffee mug that says, Your Google search is not the same as my Masters of Divinity. I laugh at that, I think it's funny. There's some truth to it, but it's the wrong attitude. Loving truth more than God is sin. And finally, setting up institutions over serving Christ. We've got clubs and organizations that we support and that we love. We've got things like our association, like our church. Well, all these different entities, the Gideons, the, the, the Brotherhood, and, and the WMA, and all these different entities that we love and that are good to support and are doing good work and it's good to participate in them. But when our focus becomes serving that rather than serving God, we have become so distracted that all of our work is in vain. It is so easy. Our enemies are all about us. They are all about driving us in. And here's the worst part, church. You, I'm preaching to the choir. I know it. These are my faithful church members. These are you. I love you all so much. I know you and I see you and I appreciate you. But here's the problem. When we don't acknowledge these things, when we don't see it, what does the world see when they come and look at Christians? Apathetic, complacent. They don't want to cause problems. They see the problems just as much as you do. But because you won't live on fire for God, because you're afraid of being a problem starter, because you're afraid of everything else, the world sees the ugly. Instead of seeing the joy. Yeah, I'll say it again. I think there's problems in every single church that is here on earth. They are waiting for the day that their Savior will return and redeem them. But you know what? There's a bright light shining in every church, too, where there is a person who is on fire for God, who is able to, despite problems, to smile and experience joy and peace. Despite disagreements, despite disheartening, despite discouragement, there's a bright light when somebody is able to say that the Word of God, that is all that matters to me because He is my first love, because this is what relieved me from my enemies. We have enemies, and we should fight them. 
We should fight them alongside God rather than relying on ourselves to do it. That's my first heading. We have relief from our enemies. My second heading, but when it came before the king. Despite all of these enemies, now put this back in the context of Esther, despite Haman working against him, being able to stir all these people, but when it came before the king, the king commanded that it would be turned against Haman's own head. Now some of you are looking at me like, you were real excited a second ago, and then I reminded you that that's my first heading, and now your eyes look like this. Oh no. (laughs) This is a very short point. Despite all the wickedness in the world, despite all of the apathy in the church, despite all the people that have fallen asleep, that is not an excuse for you not to repent today, to come forward to God, to seek Him, to seek revitalization, because when it comes before the king, these things are turned against themselves. We have a king too, and it's not King Ahasuerus. It's not Joe Biden in the White House. It's not any leader in our world. Our king is Jesus Christ who sits on a throne by the authority of the Father given to Him. He's the one that relieves us of our enemies and gives us these burdens. At times, those enemies, they seem to have won in our lives. It seems we'll never be able to pull ourselves out of this mess, let alone even be pulled away from it. But this is exactly the point, and this is exactly the reason why Mordecai obliged the people to keep this commandment. It's why the people agreed to obligate themselves and their children and their children's children and all the people who are with them, so that they would remember... Do you remember when you were saved? Do you remember your testimony? Do you remember the moment it clicked for you the first time that Jesus didn't just come and die aimlessly and pointlessly, but he died for you? Do you remember the first time you read through Genesis chapter 1 and you didn't just see a creation account of the world, the trees and the stars and the light, the plants and the sea and the animals? But you realize that the reason that Genesis 1 is like that is because God is telling you He made this for you. In His sovereignty, in His foreknowledge, in His omnipotence, He knew that one day on this world that He was creating would be born a little bitty Riley and a little bitty Peyton, and they would live in Greenwood, Arkansas. He saw that for each one of us. Do you remember the first time that the Bible stories weren't just stories, but they reminded you what God had done for you? You've got to remember that. You've got to remember that every day. You've got to wake up and remind yourself of that. You've got to remember that because in remembering that, we obligate ourselves to love God. Not out of obligation, not out of conscription. We oblige ourselves to love God because it's in our hearts. I can't make you feel, if you're not feeling it, I can't make you feel it. My words probably aren't enough. You've got to engage with this stuff, people. You've got to be the one to repent. I can't repent for you. My third point, because I said I'd speed up. Esther, after the people had obligated for themselves and kept this feast, verse 29, then Queen Esther, the daughter of Ahio and Mordecai, the Jew, Gave full written authority confirming this. She affirmed it all. She sent through the people a letter of peace and truth. I love those two words. This is the truth. God came and He delivered us from our enemies. God came gave us relief from our enemies. He gave us peace where there was none. 
I have a question for you, though. I said that I think I'm the only person that struggles with the enemy of making truth more important than God. As Baptists, we got a problem. We're a people of the book. That's not the problem. We're always going to be a people of the book. This is what matters. That's the authority in this room. Not me, not you, this book. What this book says goes. It trumps my privilege. It trumps my authority. It trumps anything I could possibly say that's wrong. This book's never wrong. Do you love truth more than you love God? If you do, you don't really love truth. We cannot just look at truth. We must remember the peace that truth establishes. Romans 15, verse 4. Paul writes, Through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. What has been written for us in the past has been written in order that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So that the deliverance of the people of God in the Old Testament would point forward to the great deliverance that is provided for us through salvation in Jesus Christ. I said that this echoes throughout the entire New Testament. Galatians 1.4, Paul writes, Galatian, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sin to deliver us from the evil age according to the will of our God and Father. He does the same thing when writing to the church of Colossae. In chapter 1, he says that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of our sins. Not only is this truth, but it is a story and a message of peace. Not only is God's word true, not only did Jesus Christ really die at some point in the first century, but he did so to establish peace with sinners. Romans 4.25, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Loved ones, if we get too focused on the truth, then we're going to miss the real message of the gospel because it's not just a story of what's right and what's wrong. It's a story of what Jesus Christ coming to earth did. It's a story of what Easter celebrates. It's a story of peace established with sinners who deserve no such peace. It's a story of those who are born into wickedness, spiritually dead, and in need of God, who are incapable of saving themselves, being given peace that they do not afford, friendship, with the creator of everything. If we do not remember this, then we will lose sight of what the church is here to do. Every Sunday is Easter Sunday for the Christian. Every time we observe the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, what do we do? But we say, what does this say on this altar? What does it say? We remember that Jesus Christ died for us. As we drink the grape juice, we remember that it was the blood of the Lamb slain for us that we could have peace with Him because all things according to the law are purified by blood. We remember that it was His bones broken on our behalf that He died because we needed to die. He died so that we wouldn't have to. He died even though He didn't deserve it 
so that we could experience what he deserved. No alienation from God, but now peace. It is not enough that we remember the truth of Jesus' death. We must remember the peace that it established. We must remember that we were once blind. That we were once blind. I don't know why it is so hard to get Christians to repent. Listen to me. I do not get it. If anybody should be accepting of the message that you are a sinner, you need to repent before God so that you are made right before Him, it should be those that are called according to His name. But it seems like when we tell the church that repentance is something that is necessary for them, that they need to come forward and they need to repent of their sins, everyone sits around like, that's not a message for me. Make sure the sinners hear that. I'm glad He said it, but that's not mine. Do you think sinners are going to respond if they see no example before them? You want revival in the church? I asked you a few weeks ago, and listen, if we do, well, no, we're going to do a revival again. When we do a revival again after this, when we have revival services, I'm going to do a better job planning it. Well, no, I won't. We will. We'll do a better job planning it next time. Only reason we're doing it is because you all have encouraged me to do it. If you want to see revival in Greenwood, in America, if you want to see people come to know their Lord and Savior and it means something, it's not going to be a sinner that walks down the aisle for the first time and accepts Christ into their heart. It's going to be a complacent, truth-loving, disobedient, and unrepentant Christian that has fallen asleep in their pew. And they're going to show the sinners what it looks like to love God. And the sinners are going to see that and they're going to say, I think something's different is happening here. Maybe there's some truth to this gospel after all. And we're going to sing songs to them until they get it because the preachers preached too long. His first point was more than two-thirds of the entire sermon. It was ridiculous. And he needs to shut his mouth. And so we're all going to sing songs to them until they remember what's going on. We're going to say, amazing grace, how great the sound. We're going to remind ourselves that we were once blind, but now we see. And then our mourning is going to turn into rejoicing. And we're going to remember what it means to have gone from a destitute position to a position of holiness and to a position of righteousness. That when we pray to God, that we know that He hears us. And then you know what a sinner is going to do? They're going to say, I think I want that. And maybe, just maybe, like the first time you heard the gospel and it made sense. Maybe, just maybe, the first time you read Genesis and realized that was about you. Maybe, just maybe, they'll say the same thing too. Because God can do things that we never even imagined. Our revival services start tomorrow at 6 p.m. How about they start now? Brother Stewart, Miss Lee Ellen, would you come up and help us in being led in a song of invitation? Help us to do what we just described.
Would you let revival start in your heart? Would you be a people of repentance this morning? Would you be a people that admits that you've grown cold and the only warmth in this God-forsaken world is in the truth of God's peace established with you? Will you let that message dwell in your heart? Father in heaven, I pray that you would do what no man can do. God, I pray that we would not be obligated because someone told us to do something, but that we would oblige ourselves in obedience with you to be a people who love God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you stand as we prepare to sing? Number 300.